The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix, and we'd recommend you check out the new documentary Descendant, now streaming on Netflix. This film by Margaret Brown is quite honestly one of our favorites of the year, and it's not just us. It's appearing on lots of Oscar preview lists. It's a richly layered story about the search for and the discovery of the Clotilda, the last known ship to arrive with enslaved Africans in the United States. But what it really is, is the story of the descendants of this ship, whose ancestors survived this horrible journey on the Clotilda, founded the community of Africa Town, which is now part of Mobile, and passed down their stories through the generations. This film, like these stories, is a true treasure. So check it out now on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Seanik Sen, the director of All That Breathes. The film is a poetic observation of a clinic run by two brothers who are devoted to saving and protecting black kites, the birds that are a constant presence in the skies of New Delhi. All That Breathes had its world premiere at the 2022 Sundance Film Festival, where it won the Grand Jury Prize for World Cinema. It went on to win the Golden Eye Award at Cannes as the festival's best documentary, and is nominated for a Gotham Award for Best Documentary Feature, as well as two Critics' Choice Awards. It is also shortlisted for the IDA Awards. Shanik Sen is an Indian filmmaker, video artist, and film scholar from Delhi. He has a PhD from the School of Arts and Aesthetics at Jawaharlal Nehru University. His first feature, Cities of Sleep, in 2016, screened at festivals throughout the world and won six documentary awards. Clearly one of the most acclaimed documentaries of the year, All That Breathes richly deserves those honors. It's a visually rich film. It's a film of ideas that is both grounded in the realities of these birds, the black kites of Delhi, and what is happening to them, and it's a film that exists comfortably within a philosophical contemplative space as well. It's also a great and compelling character study of some fascinating people. I think you'll find that Shauna touches on all of these things in our interview. Now for the caveat. Unfortunately, because of the interview setup where Shanak was talking to us, the sound quality of the interview is far from ideal. We apologize for that and hope you can push through the compromised sound to focus on his answers, which I think share a thoughtful, poetical quality with the film itself. All That Breathes is currently in theaters and will be released on HBO, as well as for streaming on HBO Max at a later date. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Twitter at TopDocsPod. And now, my conversation with Seanik Sen, the director of All That Breathes. Seanik Sen, welcome to Top Docs. Hi, hello. Nice to be here. So I'm going to just jump right in and start with the opening shot, which is something we like to do. The opening shot of All That Breathes is extraordinary. It's quite striking for our audience. The opening shot starts out impressionistically with the out-of-focus lights of a city at night and the sounds of crickets and traffic. The camera then tracks down and to the right, the blurriness sharpens and resolves, and we see that we're in an empty lot of some kind, and there's a dog in the middle distance. After a pause, the tracking shot continues, and we hear and then see a rat or two in the foreground. 
Soon we see more rats and then more and more and more. And then the shot ends with a bright light in the distance shining towards us, which then fills the frame. And then the frame kind of dissolves to white and the film titles come on. The shot, I think, both locates us in a place and simultaneously dislocates us because we don't know exactly where we are, why we're being shown this scene or what weight the shot is supposed to carry. There's also something that feels a bit dissonant about it with the contrast between the beauty and the craft of the shot of the filmmaking and the grittiness of what we're being shown. Can you talk about how you shot this and why you wanted to open the film with this one continuous shot? Firstly, thank you so much for that lovely description of the shot. You know, there's certain shots that one um, invests a lot in, in the hope that it'll land in the world in a way where people will talk about it, not just as just an opening shot. And this sort of a, a conversation starter really does justice to the many nights we spent. Firstly, just to place it in the thematic context of the film itself, as the film is about primarily about these brothers who work with the black kites, this one word. So we begin with the subterranean realm of we're immersed in this world of hundreds of rats. We then see a lone kite floating in the sky. And the third shot is a mosquito on a puddle of water. It starts with three different sort of registers of the vertical. So we have the ground level, the subterranean, the aerial in the kite, and this kind of tertiary middle sort of a space that the mosquito occupies. So that was a thematic structuring principle of the shots. In the film, there's two lines. First being that of the brothers themselves who form the emotional nerve center of the film. But other than that, you have this sense of light straight large on the canvas of the city, right? A bunch of animal shots like rats, pigs, snails, horses, and so on and so forth. Now, I thought it made sense to begin with four long minutes of just rats. It begins with sort of stapling together some of the main thematic undercurrents of the film. So we begin with a blinking traffic light and the city and traffic and the, uh, the cars visit past in the background. And then we, the camera glides down to this world where you see one small thing scuppering away and you can't really tell if it's a rat and then two others or three others and before you know it, you're floating through a hundred others. So that sort of, you know, encapsulates in some ways the, uh, both the formal and aesthetic strategies of the film and the main philosophical preoccupations of the film. The shooting was, I mean, it was as grimy as you can imagine. Like, firstly, how do you find hundreds of rats? And I had this kind of a vague abstract dream of like a texture of the shot, which is I wanted to be grainy. I wanted it to feel grimy and a bit icky. And the sense that you were in the middle of thousands of rodents, but for it to look beautiful, for it to be aesthetically appealing. So like in many other things in the film, the main principle was Reki, 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 Reki. And we finally found this one mouth bang in the center of the city in old Delhi, actually. Very busy traffic cross-section. And the main tell for there to be a rat nest underground is the number of holes that you see on the ground. So we observed it for three full nights, noticed the patterns and the kind of rhythms of the rat's movements. And of course, like every now and then one cheats a tiny little bit by throwing a few pieces of bread and so on. But even then it's very difficult because the minute we go close to the camera, the rats scurry away. So what Ben, the DP who shot this device, was this kind of improvised equipment for it. What he did was on top of a tripod, he mounted a monopod and hung it, and that was tied together with a rope. 
so that it was a kind of makeshift crane, but in a very interesting kind of a non-crane-like movement. It crept along the surface of the ground, which was interesting. And then, of course, two consecutive nights, many long hours, like all of us standing about 20 feet away watching on the monitors. And essentially, over time, I think what happens is that you get used to, Ben and I got used to rats running over our feet and uh, running past our ankles. And I think the rats got used to the crates, the equipment and us. It took really long. And I remember thinking while shooting it that this had better be the first shot. And if there's one shot in the film where we fully take the luxury of a long three and a half minute, you know, very self-indulgent, if you may. This had to be it. I think it's a good way to enroll the audience in, into the program of the film where you're told, no, be patient, sit and watch rats for three minutes. I think it helps. It helps audiences' expectations and ways that help the film. Yeah, it definitely sets expectations and it also acquaints us with your visual aesthetic, which is going to later involve a number of these kind of tracking shots, pans, tilts, camera movements that are very deliberate, very revealing, and very beautiful. Sticking with the filmmaking for just a minute, these shots that I described, one of the functions I think of them is that they reveal entirely different worlds coexisting within the same frame. So rather than rely on the cut, you rely on the mise-en-scene to convey this information. What are some of your influences in terms of these kind of shots? Certainly Jean-Luc Godard comes to mind, but many filmmakers have used these techniques. Actually, Godard was not ever an influence. Not for this film. I'm profoundly influenced by him as a doyen of the cinema, but not for this film. I wouldn't situate him as part of the filmography that influences him at all. But you're right, the animal bits were especially, it felt like we were making two films in one, right? One was the story of this incredible family and the black kites and the other was this panoply of animal shots that we were shooting so the idea here was that i needed the film to be meditative and contemplative and reflect on the philosophical approach that underwrites the brothers lives which is that the film had to be about human non-human entanglement it had to be about neighborliness or kinship that we share with our like non-human lives and to open up the urban as a kind of space that's constantly jostling cheek by jowl between human and non-human states. So those are some central things. We were sure that it had to be uncut. There couldn't be any cuts. For one, to inhabit the temporal life, the temporal world of the animal, like for two minutes, you're just watching a turtle. Or you see these big fires being burnt in the city. And the camera then slowly shifts focus and we see a snail with the fires in the background. And for a minute and a half, you're just watching the snails. I think what it does is that you home in on the temporal life of the animal. And I think more than the written word or like print or the spoken word, cinema does it. Like images do it far better than the printed word. If I was to describe and talk about a snail next to a burning 30-foot pyre, I wouldn't really be able to communicate it. Cinema does it far better than most other mediums. In terms of the filmography, my gift this thing was Viktor Kosakovsky's film called Vivan Las Antipodas. It's, to my mind, the best cinematographic film I've ever seen. It's the best shot movie in non-fiction that I've seen. And actually, the DP of Viktor Koskovsky, the guy who shot Aquarela, etc., is Ben, the guy who shot our film as well. In Antipodas, there's this incredible poetry of shooting the natural world. And that's almost the film doesn't require dialogue. It doesn't require the human, per se. It's truly singular and special. In terms of the editing, I was very influenced by Franco Rossi and the narrative patterns of his film. 
Or if you've seen this recent film from two years ago called The Chocolate Hunters, which structurally was very interesting. Actually, Charlotte, our editor, was the editor of Hunters as well. I was struck how the basement was depicted, the basement where the team of Nadim and Saud, assisted by Salik, work on the kites. It's very much a character in the film. And yeah, yeah. It serves multiple functions for them. It's a home, it's a place to work, it's a makeshift bird hospital. And I felt like he went to great pains to make it come alive in a number of shots. Some of these tracking shots that I mentioned before, you didn't cite this as an influence, but I'll tell you as a viewer, I did think of the great Indian filmmaker Satyat Rai's depiction of the family home in his classic 1955 film, Father Panchali. I just felt like the way you were giving this basement a life of its own and a fully realized three-dimensional quality that people interact with did remind me of the way the family home is depicted in his first film in the trilogy. I mean, that's only and always an irreplaceably a compliment. Not least because I'm Indian and of course, Satya Trey is a towering, staggering figure. But also because I'm Bengali. So my parents came from the same city that Satya Trey lived in. And of course, that film is like part of the bloodstream of our cultural consciousness, right? You asked about the space. The thing is, I think for me, for all intents and purposes, the film, first began because of what we call planet basement of their house. So you see, the first character they made to research for the film were the brothers. I've never met anybody else after that because I was so convinced after seeing that basement. So the first time when we reached there, you suddenly come into this damp, dank, derelict basement with industrial decay and heavy metal cutting machines. And suddenly on, when you look to the left, you suddenly see this parade of these magisterial birds being treated. So the sheer salient bipolarity of that space is truly singular and cinematically dramatic. And it's a dense space. It's a dense space where you feel like you can keep binding and excavating layers and layers and sediments and sediments and still something else. And it's like, the truth is you can't tell if it's day or night. You can't tell what time it is. Life is a kind of cyclical. You can't tell its own circadian rhythms because it's both the mixture of, uh, it's a kind of chiaroscuro lighting, this tube light and all of that. So all in all, it's super cinematic because there's depth, there's a kind of play of light and shadow. And you have these workers who are doing these extremely monotonous metal cutting things. And randomly there's a crane that walks past, there's an owl that's hooting on the side. And there's a kind of surreal absurdity to that space, which was incredible. And the first thing that we saw there when my friend and producer Aman Mal and I went there was that we were waiting for the brothers to come down and I saw these cardboard cartons kept in back at the time didn't know what was inside them and while I was waiting suddenly one of them started moving and I was creeped out like animals have this kind of sense of uncanny presence you know like there's a quick scurry somewhere there's a spectral aspect to them and one of those uh, cartons suddenly moved on its own and fell down and both of us jumped up out of our seats. And of course, we had to love that as a season. That's how the film began. And I think that also inspired the uh, cinematography because the fact that it's not a restless, anxious style, it's not a kind of raw, grim, hat held style, but this very tripoded, trapped, kind of flowy cinematic style is because of that space. It's not intuitively correct or authentic to that space to have a kind of restless, anxious style. And also just the way it's lit seems faithful to those kind of basement or underground spaces. Mm -hmm. It also, I think, taps into a deeper kind of emotional realm of the underworld. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's back up a bit and talk about how you did meet the brothers. 
This film's about a small bootstrapped wildlife rescue operation focused on treating injured black kites, mm -hmm. which is a bird of prey. We're not talking about the man-made construction that people fly in the sky at the end of a string. How did you learn about this kite saving operation and meet Nadim and Saud? If you live in Delhi, what happens is that you're constantly very aware of the air as a kind of palpable, concrete, heavy, opaque, pervasive phenomenon that's laminating your lives, right? The sky is a kind of monochromatic, undistinguished haze. The sun is a diffused blot. And you constantly have these black, lazy dots gliding in the sky, which are the black kites. All of us are like breathing in noxious fumes and... It's really a part of everyday discourse cutting across different kinds of social denominations. Uh, unlike anywhere else in the world, you meet anybody, they talk about often what the number, the pollution number is. So it's really a, like a thing that's coating our lives in the most ubiquitous kind of way. So I was interested in making something on the abstraction, on the abstract triangulation of air, bird, and humans. And I think it was how it started if I had to pinpoint one moment. It was when I sat in my car in a traffic jam. And I remember looking up and looking at these tiny black dots. And one of them seemed to follow. And I was gripped by this feeling of this one black kite that's falling off this grey polluted expanse. And I literally went back home and googled where do birds that fall off the sky <laughs> go. And actually that's how the film began. So I went and met the brothers after. And like I was saying just now... Once you've gone into that basement and you see how the brothers lead their lives, it's a kind of free fall. You know, film is like jumping off a cliff and then for two years before, you're just in this fever dream of free falling kind of thing where the grammar is evolving. And you become the person who can make the film. That's how it starts. That's how we met the brothers. And before we knew it, we were in the middle of a full throttle region feature length film. So are the brothers well known in Delhi for the work that they do? Had you already heard of them? I did not know them, but they're known in the niche birding or animal care circuits. There have been some media reports on them prior to this, but no, I wouldn't say very well known, but known in a very niche circle of people. In terms of this triangular relationship that you mentioned between air, bird, and humans, there is an early scene where the young man, Salik, who's the brother's assistant, he's tending to a bird. He's on the roof. Out of nowhere, a bird swoops down from behind him and grabs his glasses and flies away, which for those of us who wear glasses is kind of the ultimate nightmare scenario. It's actually, though, a very comedic scene. He's smiling. He doesn't seem outwardly upset. And of course, it's hard not to think about Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds in that moment. I'm just wondering in terms of you and the crew's interaction with the kites as you're making this film, did you have any camera gear that was absconded with in a similar fashion? For one, the moment of kite taking Salik's glasses is for me the most profoundly non-Hitchcockian moment because the kite is not like a kind of ominous, threatening, avian revenge saga that Hitchcock makes. And it's a kind of comedic moment. And I, how the shot came about is that you notice the shooting of it is very different from the rest of the film because it's a bit handheld and a bit draw and all that. The thing is that was, that's one of the few rare moments from the first year of preliminary shooting of the film. Because the first year was where I was still figuring out what intuitively what the grammar of the film ought to be, what the pace is, what its relationship to time essentially is. Hardly anything of that first year's footage has been used, except like the thing is that you have to keep showing up and shooting and then life rewards you with accidents, right? It's like suddenly a 
you will get the reflection of a plane on a water puddle. You will get a kite taking away your glasses, all of that. It's because life rewards you with contingencies the minute you just stay put and wait and wait and wait and embrace the radical unscriptedness of nature. In terms of our own relationships with the kites, I mean, it was different. Some people, Aman, our close friend and producer of the film, was petrified of them. I was more or less okay, but I was very uh, mindful of the regal creatures that are also slightly ferocious. They're not come hither cute songbirds. They're not cutesy things. So I would have a kind of guarded, cautious friendliness with them. Some others didn't. But over time, you sort of figured out how to read the body language of kites, what they're going to do, when it's okay to go near, when it's what not okay to do, and so on and so forth. That's part of the job, right? And we also were conscious of never wanting to shoot it like a nature dog or a wildlife documentary. We didn't have that experience, not that we have that aspiration. Sort of, we have to figure out this kind of observed arm's length style. And that was good because I didn't have to go too close. But, but Alec would often be there helping us navigate the world as the guides. And as you know, that Salik in the film is this incredibly sweet, almost unvarnished, innocent figure, right? And it's especially helps because in stark contrast to the kind of stoic seriousness of the brothers, it's very, very refreshing and interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask you later about Salik, and I was going to describe him as an innocent. What makes Salik Salik? For one, in contradistinction to the brothers, who have the weight of the world, literally, the entirety of the birdfall of the Delhi skies comes into that tiny claustrophobic basement. And it sort of runs them aground. And why I was interested in them actually is that there's a lot of environmental discourse that either is characterized by a bleeding heart sentimentality or a kind of gloom and doom despair. And I think that films that do that actually do more disservice to the topic. And the brothers are interesting as a kind of philosophical disposition to the climate change issue because they have a kind of wry resilience, right? They have a kind of put your head down, unsentimental, stoic sense of soldiering on because the birds are falling and somebody has to do what they do. So they just get on with it. And I find it a very sophisticated version of hope because they're not optimistic in a naive, simplistic manner. There's a guarded, cautious hope that has been keeping with the bleak inevitability of the crisis that is beginning to befall us. So the brothers are very interesting philosophical figures as a kind of disposition of unsentimental, redemptive microgestures that become the life raft of ethical stance. Now, in contrast to this set of the brothers, Tawik himself is this incredibly innocent, kind of unvarnished, unpretentious figure. He's really something special. I usually pay a lot of attention to people's smiles when they're going to be on camera, like how much their face lights up, the effervescence of it, it's like Salik is a cutie. When he smiles, the audience is inevitably laugh. And the things that we didn't even anticipate, like he talks about what's going to happen if we go and lie down in the cage, are they going to eat us? Or he's going to talk uh, about something absurd. So all of that gets us the laughs and that really, really matters, especially in a film whose inherent subject matter is underwritten by this kind of deepness. In terms of sort of the philosophical strand in the film, the film is very visual for sure, but you also have this voiceover, which I believe is Nadim who's reading that. Is that correct? Yeah. So the thing is that what happened is that over time, we realized that the brothers are also philosophers of the urban. You know, they talk about the city through an ecological or an evolutionary lens. So it's truly unique and not too many people open up the urban through that kind of a lens. I started maintaining a diary of Nadim and South's wisdom. And there are also poetic, there are observational gems that 
I needed to put it to the film, which is why we have these clearly stylized kind of voiceover moments where I've taken bits that they've said that are really smart in the last two and a half years and compressed it into an obviously stylized and lyrical kind of a package, cut to the flowy kind of images out there that woke the childhood or woke the aura of the kite or the state of the city and all of that. I came into the film with a kind of national secular perspective, whereas they did not. They have a kind of cosmological, their own animal care ethics is very inflected by their own religious beliefs, right? And the voiceovers is those two things, the world of ecology and science and environment and evolution, and their own world of myth and folklore and kind of ecological vitalism. So let's get back to the birds for a moment again. We learn that the kites are falling out of the sky, and it seems like it's due to the very poor air quality in Delhi. Is that correct? There's a whole variety of reasons. I would be loath to say that it's only because of the air quality, because essentially what's happening with the kites is connected to a dense kind of ecological meshwork of reasons. One is, of course, the fact that the air is more opaque than ever makes it tougher and increasingly burns uh, either collide into buildings or get entangled in wires. But that's the kind of like, thing that I'm hypothesizing. There are a multi- multiplicity of other reasons. For instance, you know, the vultures, which were the predators above the food chain, have died because of this mass extinction event called the Diclofenac event, wherein Diclofenac was a thing that was used in pesticides, if I'm not mistaken, and would eat it. And once the livestock would die, the vultures would eat their carcasses and have renal failure and die. And because the numbers of vultures died, like I haven't seen a vulture in Delhi for the last 15 years, but my parents used to see them all the time. Suddenly, the kind became the apex avian predator. And also, apart from that, the size of the landfill and the sheer waste that the city produces means that there's a lot of food source readily available, right? It's not really a preservation question. It's not like their population is dwindling. More and more birds are falling down, but the bird also, the kite also is a very successful urban rear. So it's also the densest population of black kite in the world. It's this complex sort of thing that where the numbers are high. Apart from that, there's also the cultural epiphenomenon that is flying paper kites goes a long way because birds increasingly get entangled in the paper kite trails that have big ashes in their wings and all of Yeah, we do see that scene later where people are on the rooftops flying kites. And there's an obvious connection there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So one of the things about the brothers is they clearly share an obsession over the birds. And it does cause certain strain both in their relationship with each other, but also with their families. Over the course of being with them and making the film, do you think that the kites are a healthy obsession for the two of them? Or perhaps it has a bit too much of a hold on them? Or how would they describe it? The whole film is an exploration of why they do what they do. And like any truly complex question, there's no obvious straightforward answer to this at all. The film started with the question of why do you do what you do? I definitely would not render it in terms of healthy or not healthy because it's the entirety of their lives that they've singularly devoted to the cause of the black kite. So it's not a question of healthy or not healthy. You're right in diagnosing that the film's one of its true lines is the inner life of my brothers. And while Saud himself is fully content in earning Sawab or model credit in saving the birds and giving himself fully, single-mindedly to the black guides, Nadine, though he understands, has a kind of salary kind of position where he doesn't fully occupy. So he's not fully at peace with what he does and feels kind of discontentment and 
that sometimes paints as a kind of toxicity. The idea was never to make a sweet film about nice people doing good things. The film had to be in touch with the necessary darknesses and fractures of their relationship. One of my favorite bits in the film is when Nadeem talks about how he feels trapped and suffocated. And he says, if I died tomorrow, I would know if my life was worth it. Which is saying a lot for somebody who's devoted his life to saving one species. While at the same time, it, it takes away so much, but it gives them so much back. So I wouldn't call it unhealthy. It's definitely something that has alienated them, often from their own family members and so on, and caused actually some degree of depressive pangs and so on. But having said that, it's also given them, in their own words, innumerable riches. I don't think they would have it any other way. Let's talk about the social and political context, which really doesn't become apparent, I'd say, until about a third of the way through the film. There's a scene where Salik goes outside and we hear snippets of some kind of political speech coming through loudspeakers. And one snippet is the Constitution has to be saved. And this is the first time that kind of the outside world has impinged on their protected liminal space in the basement. How did you decide creatively how you were going to reveal the larger social and political world of the city and the nation and let it bleed into their special world? So when we began the film, the idea was to make its main preoccupation through ecological and the brothers themselves are less interested in the question of sectarian politics that they are a different kind of cosmological politics, that of man and bird. But what happened is that the city of Delhi was on the boil for a couple of years and it was a kind of constant unrest and turbulence behind them. So the wallpaper of their lives was constantly tumultuous and it kept leading in. And over time, we kept wrestling with the decision of whether to turn the camera streetwards. But the thing is that the brothers wanted to keep going in on only the work that they do. So I had to respect that, yet keep some kind of finger on the trouble outside. The idea of the leak became very instrumental to us because we decided that the outside world, the macro world, will sort of leak in. So a character goes to the balcony and you hear the vibrations around. A character, Salek, looks at his cell phone to see the video of obvious heinous violence and we only hear the audio. So the outside world is sort of sensed and over time I now prefer this because I feel like it's better to sense the political instead of pedantically being lectured on what's right and what's wrong. Because if you reveal your cards very early on, what happens is that you're either preaching to the choirs or you're immediately being rejected by people at the other end of the spectrum. And films are meant to be Trojan horses, right? It's like you have to sneak in things and speak and whisper to the better angels of people's nature. So if you're able to emotionally move people, where they're fully invested in these two brothers, and then they realize that the brothers are soldiering on and doing their work, even though all of this is going down, it sneaks in. And the idea is that you have to tweak people's cultural and psychological responses to things. That's our responsibility as filmmakers, to not show our cards, obviously, and to tweak and through micro gestures of tiny hacks, get your point across. There's a scene where they go to a cemetery to visit the gravesite of their mother. It's a long shot, and Nadim is leaning up against a car, and Saud is sitting on the wall, and they're talking, and Saud is seen in profile. And it's a conversation where Nadim is telling his brother, hey, I've got this offer to go study abroad, and I'm going to take it. And you really do get the sense that this is a momentous moment for the brothers Saud doesn't say very much, but clearly the wheels are turning and this is going to have a major impact on his life and the work that they're doing. 
And yet, you know, we still are at a distance. There's no close-up of Saud's facial expression. We don't impinge on their physical space. And yet it is a very emotional scene. I just thought you did that so well. One other thing is equally extraordinary, if not more so, is there's silence between them at the end, and it just lingers and lingers. And that's just an incredible moment. My favorite docs have been the ones that are usually dense, oblique, and elliptical. And very often, there are, especially if you spend the entirety of the film's first two parts, in close proximity to these two characters. After a while, if one of them is asking if the other person will go off and the other person says, yes, he's going to go off, and there's a minute-long silence. That pregnant silence is obviously far more profound in contrast to anything that they could have said, right? Of course, if I let that shot play out, after a while, there's a long conversation about that decision. But that's far less interesting than that one pregnant pause, right? I think if you have faith in a kind of elliptical style of filmmaking when it comes to excavating human behavior, that things have to be dense. And at that point, it couldn't have been verbose. It had to be spared. And by that point, the film is done with its talking. And in the third act, you can't have too much talking anymore. I mean, this is a bit technical, but in those bits, there had to be a kind of slow burn texture of separation between the two. And then the ending of the film is the last thing we hear, Nadeem says, can you hear me? Can you hear me? And the image is frozen between the two. So it was like slowly progressing towards that kind of a paralytic breakdown between the two of them. In the end, the brothers are featured in this New York Times article, and they do get some government funding, it seems, which enables them to build a new facility on the roof of the building. The kites are transferred from the basement up to the roof. And obviously, this is a good development for the brothers and their work, but it's also a bit bittersweet. It marks the end of one phase of their work and their lives. Earlier, Nadim had said, what we've achieved in the last 20 years is a kind of miracle. And there is a miraculous aspect to the film. It has a spiritual, supernatural quality. And it made me wonder, because it also has this gritty quality. To what extent did you want the film to soar like the kites? And to what extent did you want it to exist down in the basement and in the dirt with the rats and the mosquitoes? I think the soaring is connected to the crawling just like the rats in the beginning are connected to the kites at the end. So the subterranean ground level makes the air levitate, right? Those are connected principles. Every bird that flies off from that cage after it's healed is a miracle. And the merit of the brother's story is that despite all the impossible scale of inevitable ecological collapse, these are brothers who are doing a tiny, it's a tiny blip in the history of climate change. But their work feels like a life raft of fairly radical everydayness. In that sense, I think the film had to have a kind of meditative and lyrical quality also. So it had to make us think about the rats, pigs, snails, horses, lizards, such as the film. And you, you had to zoom out and think of other things and not think of it as just a sweet story about bird hospital. So hopefully the grammar of the film kind of mirrors that ambition. So in closing, you know, Nadim says their mother believed one shouldn't differentiate between all that breeds. And maybe a corollary of that applied to uh, filmmakers would be one shouldn't differentiate between artists who are striving to tell the truth in their own way. But I do want to differentiate for just a moment and say you've made a truly profound and unique and beautiful film. And I want to congratulate you on it. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. 
If you can, can you tell us what's up next for you? I want to continue working on the theme of the ecological sublime and the planetary. I might make a fiction for it. I can see those fictional elements in your work already, so that would seem to be a natural extension. Do you have a recommendation for a documentary hidden gem that you'd like to spotlight? Victor Kosakovsky's Vivan Las Antipodas. I've never seen a film that's better shot. It's incredible and it's monumental cinematically and it doesn't require people talking, it doesn't require a narrative arc. It's just the sublime beauty of their visuals.